Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. It's the big 5-0 for the podcast today, and for the occasion, it's another edition of Old Home Week with my grad school comics running mate, the author and academician Jess Nevins. We talk about how he became known for annotating comics, starting with Kingdom Come, and then all of his work on the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. We also talk about how research has changed in the digital age, both for him as a research librarian and for his students. Finally, we talk about the current comic scene, what books he is reading, and some recommendations. We also tell some stories from our comics role-playing past, including which Golden Age sorcerers we played online. Once again, I'd like to apologize for the podcast hiatus due to health issues, but hopefully we are now back on track. There are a couple upcoming guests that are scheduled that I am super excited to interview, and hopefully those will drop by the end of the year. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Our big anniversary show continues with what has turned into Old Home Week here on the podcast. And for our big 50th episode, it's my longtime pal, academician, and annotator extraordinaire, Jess Nevins. How's it going? Hi. Pretty good. How are you doing? I am, like I said, I am, I am recovering from illness, which led to the podcast hiatus for a little while. But we're back. We did one the other day, and now we are on big episode 50. We had originally planned this to be episode 52, given you know the comic significance and what we're going to talk about. But we had some people postpone, so we ended up – this is episode 50, so here we are. For people that uh, may not know, um, you are probably best known, at least in the comics world, uh, for your number of – research books and annotations to comics, probably most notably uh, the Alan Moore stuff. But right. the first thing that you did, if I remember correctly, was for Kingdom Come, right? A guy named Scott – oh, I don't remember his last name. Um, Scott something or other did some really good annotations to the Golden Age, and that inspired me to start reading – start doing them on my own for Kingdom Come. I wanted to see if, if I could do as good a job as he did. And they turned out pretty well, and it gave me a fair amount of attention, including that of Mark Wade, which turned out to be a mixed blessing. Um, and then from there, I just started annotating stuff, and when League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came along, I thought, oh, this is great. I can apply my knowledge of literature and other things besides comics. With Kingdom Come, the thing people people may not remember is this is in the mid-90s, and the Internet was really – well, the Internet had been around, but the web had – only been around for a few years. In fact, I remember we were in grad school together when basically 
Mosaic invented what would become the World Wide Web. And so uh, the Kingdom Come annotations were online, and I know there was a that was like sort of an early know, fandom kind of thing where you had lots of contributions from people all over the net because this was and we'll get to this, this is at a time when you couldn't really research a lot of stuff online. We all still had, you know, we all still did paper research for the most part. And so this was kind of like a like an early sort of electronic shadow memory kind of project that you got lots of help with. Yeah, it was it was different because there weren't there wasn't Wikipedia, there wasn't the various wiki pages that Marvel and DC have put up. There wasn't we had to FTP into into places to to get things and so when you were doing annotations you were really relying on your own memory and your own your own library of comics and the contributions of other people it was uh, 20 years ago and it was a much different time for annotating comics um, of course those are the days of Usenet when there was I think much more of a unified comics community. Right, and so like you said, uh, then came League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Your annotations were were they officially sanctioned by by Moore and O'Neill? Were they sort of wink wink approved, or how did that all come about? There was never actually an official sanction given by DC. Um, the I, I was doing the annotations. For, I did the annotations for the first issue, and someone from Spin Magazine was interviewing Alan Moore about League and showed him the annotations on a computer, and Moore was very complimentary of it. And so at the end of the sixth issue, when I was doing the annotations, Gosh, I don't remember anymore. Uh, I think I got approached by who did approach me? I, a go-between. Uh, I don't remember who anymore. Um, offered to ask more a question or two for on my behalf, on everyone's behalf, and so uh, I did that. And then once we put them in book form, and I arranged to interview more that I sort of got his official imprimatur on the annotations. Did he correct them at any point? Like, did he say, this is not this, it's actually that? Or was is it just was he just mainly saying, these are okay, but he was hands-off? Uh, he was pretty hands-off. Kevin O'Neill, when I, I would send them to him, send the annotations to him, and he would send back corrections. Um, Moore never never went over it in in that much detail but i would ask him questions about pressing matters like was mina murray a vampire and he'd give a he'd give an answer to that but um no he was never he was never pouring over the annotations the way i did and the way fans did by the time that you did the league annotations um were you still doing most of this research uh in print or had you moved on to some digital by then? Some digital, but mostly print. Um, 
I think it wasn't until the the third series that Wikipedia was around, and so uh, for the first and second series, much of it was my library, um, with supplemented by by what I could find online, which was an increasing amount as time went by. Now with Wikipedia, it's doing annotations is sort of pointless because just about anybody can do what I do. I was going to say, is it sort of, I mean, at this point in 2016, is it sort of a lost art? Because it's every, I mean, yeah, like every, anybody and their brother can just figure anything out pretty much. Yeah, it is. It's, there are still some things that rely, that I'm more, I'm better positioned to answer than other people. Um, I know Victoriana pretty well, and so if if more were to ever do another Victorian League book, which probably isn't going to happen, I'd be really well positioned to answer those. Um, and I, Moore and O'Neill always talk about trying to stump me, and that's a terrifying prospect. But I, because of all the research I've done on fictional heroes, it I I have resources and book manuscripts that haven't appeared yet that have information that may may be useful and that isn't available online. So it is it is a, a bygone art, but there, it still has its moment. I know. I always meant to do the Starman one, and you know there was there was like the fanzine that I think maybe got halfway done. That I know at least Robinson and Tony. I think sort of tacitly approved of them. I know they had the copy. They had a copy in the DC office that I had sent mm. Pete Tomasi. But and then when we restarted the magazine, I had thought about reviving it. But it just seems like it's you know everything's online now, and it's like you know what would sort of be the point, right? And it's also I mean it also doesn't help that DC has now taken the Starman hardcovers out of print. So it's almost like, what would it be for? Other than the people, you know, who had it before, but it's not like you're going to get a new audience at the moment, at least. At least, you know, in trade. Before we, we move off more, um, have you had a chance to read Jerusalem yet? I haven't. I haven't read it yet. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it. I've heard nothing but good things about it. Uh, it's just... It's something I'll get to soon, but I'm I'm finishing up a a, a book at the moment, and and I'm about to index another book of mine for publication. So most of my time right now is taken up with my own work. I just don't have time for reading. It's just one of those things when you see it, it looks so so daunting. Just yeah. sit just sitting there, because I know I have uh, I have Jonathan Wilson's book on the history of. Argentine football, which is like six or seven hundred pages, and it's just sitting there, and it's like six inches thick, and it's like I've tried to start it a couple times, and it's like I just don't know if I have the energy for this yet. Yeah, um, I have to be in the right right brain space to to really tackle something that size, and I'm just not there at the moment. It's reading reading massive tomes used to be easier. Um, and also, it's a matter of time. I'm 
you know, I've got like an hour a night to to read to myself and just it's so easy to to watch Westworld rather than sit there and watch Westworld or catch up on email or whatever rather than sit down with the with the tome and tackle it. The other I don't know if this was your most recent thing, but you also did the Fables Encyclopedia. That was like three or four years three or four years ago. How did how did that come about? Did DC come to you? Did Willingham come to you? Willingham came to me. He knew he knew about my annotations for League, and he just approached me and said, "We'd like to have you do this," um, which was very flattering. And DC DC were really a pleasure to work with. Um, I you know it was just. They sent me whatever I needed. Um, they were great about paying on time and deadlines and all that sort of thing. And Willingham was very forthcoming with whatever questions I had. Um, so, yeah, that was that was one of the cases where the creator approached me, and that. The sort of thing I was doing research on isn't available, easy, isn't easily found, let's put it that way, online. And a lot of what's online about the fables isn't necessarily accurate. So that one, I felt like there was an audience for it, and it, it wasn't sort of rendered moot by, by Wikipedia, which is well, always the big fear. Was it sort of a different kind of research since you were, you know, presumably doing folk tales and fairy tales as opposed to just sort of literary reference? I mean, did you have to sort of, for for like a myth that has multiple versions, did you have to try and sort of figure out which one to go with and then which one fits into the fables universe and things like that? Yeah, I was. It was a lot more book related and database related than um, than going online to find stuff. Um, I since I was dealing with centuries old literary constructs, there's just so much misinformation online that I. I I went with the library here at work and, and the resources there it just provide a, a better end product. Was that a lot of first generation stuff or was it like second or third? Like how far were you able to go back and researching like say like German folk tales? Like did, would you able to go back hundreds and hundreds of years or maybe just, you know, like oh, – I, I didn't go back and, and ex examine primary text. There, we had enough uh, reference books on fairy tales and legends that I was able to rely on them. Um, DC wasn't really interested in annotations, the length that I would do for League. Their their marching orders were fairly specific about how concise they wanted the end result to be, which was a relief to me because I didn't have to go find the primary texts online. Um, and, you know, I didn't have to go to drive over to Austin to examine 
rare documents at, at University of Texas at Austin. Um, I was able to rely on, on secondary critical work. The other thing that you've done in recent years is you've written text pieces for comics. I know you did some for, for Brubaker and Phillips. Was that a case, too, where, where they came to you, or did somebody at Image sort of put you guys together, or how did that work? Uh, Ed came to me. Um, he he knew of my work, and when he was writing um, Incognito, because it was so pulp-oriented, uh, he thought of me, and so I started writing text pieces on pulp characters and he likes my work and I respond I, I I'm a quick worker on that sort of thing and so we've just I've just kept doing it for him um, but yeah that was a case where where he approached me have you done that for anybody else besides their stuff no it was a text piece for Athena Voltaire I did an introduction for Atomic Robo that's about it do you have anything in that vein coming in the future, or is it all just sort of your books and stuff? Uh, I did a piece for Kill or Be Killed, uh, Ed, Ed and Sean's new new book, uh, the most recent issue, issue number four. Uh, I think it's out. I got my comp copies yesterday, so I assume it's going to be out this week or next. I don't um, think. Yeah, I don't think it came out today. I don't remember okay. seeing it in the. We're taping this Wednesday afternoon, and I've been to the store already, and I don't remember seeing it, so it may be next week. That's it as far as comic stuff goes. Most of what I've got out is coming out as books. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to all the plugs at the end. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, if people don't know, you are a research librarian. And I'm just curious, because it's been 20 years since you know we were in grad school together, and like I said, it was really the beginning of the digital age what's research like now in like in the present do you is everything just online i mean this is either for you as a researcher or you dealing with students is everything just done online is online used to facilitate getting print whether it's like old stuff or maybe like you know interlibrary loan sort of how how does that kind of stuff work now well, it's there's so much out there. It really is drinking for like drinking from a fire hose. Um, with students, we try and direct them toward specific databases geared toward specific subjects, um, so that they don't have to spend their time in. There are general databases that are pretty much like Google and have millions of articles. And then there are databases that are geared to one discipline. And so we direct them to the discipline-specific databases. As far as, as far as my work goes, um, there's just so much out there that you, you learn to be very precise in your searching and to know the, the gimmicks that databases like Google and Jern.org present. Um, 
there's a there's a tremendous amount out there and more more coming every day but at the same time there are tremendous gaps in the knowledge out there um i'm working on an encyclopedia of pulp heroes and there is a vast amount of information that is only available in book form or in fanzine form and that just just isn't available online um there are detectives whose authors there's one detective who whose author produced 68 books about this detective over a 50-year span who has less than a thousand google hits and they're all ads for used copies of the books so it's it's very hit or miss uh, more and more it's hit these days but there's still depending on your your research there's a, just such a there's a huge amount of miss too but you know that that depends on like if you're researching popular culture of the past which is a lot of what I do then you're going to be miss a lot but if you're doing say genealogy there's just so much online you can barely know where to begin um and as far as like old newspapers just there are so many old newspapers online that when i do research on on historical topics you know i don't have to rely on critical work i can go read the original newspapers that were published um you know in the 20s and 30s or the 1890s or whatever so it it depends on your subject and depends on what you want to get out of it but i i it's it's a much different world now for students than it used to be is that true for international stuff too is it sort of the same rules apply um it's there's we're still in the beginning of the the international stuff being made available uh every every time google improves their translate function it's a cause for rejoicing because it just makes it easier to translate these foreign web pages but um there's again my subject is popular culture and if you're doing research into popular culture of non-american non-british non-french and even non-german countries you're you're stuck to books just cuz there's all the italian stuff all the spanish stuff that's not available online it's you're you're stuck with books most of which aren't translated into english and so but i i assume that's going to change as as time passes as well and i hope that there are there are geeks in japan and china who are enthused about putting putting up websites devoted to their favorite characters and all we'll have to do is run them through google google translate and get them that way i would think certainly as pop culture crazy as japan is that yeah there's probably thousands of things already you know that have been researched and it's just a matter of being able to get to them 
Yeah, uh, I'll never know. Well, maybe not never, but I, I certainly don't know now because it's it's all in Japanese. But um, if we get Google Auto Translate or some improved universal translator, we can certainly find out. But yeah, um, Japan, I, I'm waiting for them to weigh in in a big way. The other thing that I was curious about, given sort of the digital research question, is how difficult is your job as an instructor dealing with issues like plagiarism or things like that when like all of this reference is so easily available for for people to assimilate without really, you know, doing the work? Is it how difficult is it to know what if somebody's really written what they've written uh well thankfully i don't do the grading um i teach them how to do research but i don't actually grade their assignments so the the stress of trying to figure out whether something is plagiarized or not doesn't doesn't fall on me but i know a bunch of instructors and it, Students generally aren't imaginative in their plagiarism, so that it's it's easy to Google these things, especially if the paper is, is written too well. You know, it's easy to tell if a paper is using a vocabulary and sophisticated thought that your average 19-year-old isn't going to be capable of. And that's that's a big clue, and you see that, and then you just go searching for the paper they play or article they plagiarized it from. Um, it's a it's a constant battle as an instructor to as a librarian to try and get them not to not to cheat and to do their own research, but well. You know, it's it's a losing battle, but we, we try. I just know I was talking to somebody at work who, you know, was like, t- like getting their master's or something, and they were in a class with somebody, and they're like younger, but they're like older than average students, but, you know, younger than us. And they were just sort of talking about like sort of classroom life, and it's, it sounded so foreign or even like futuristic. It's like, you know, when we, you know, when we were in school, like hardly anybody had laptops, you know, and they certainly wouldn't take them to class with them or take their phone and record a lecture so they don't really have to. It's a lot of this sort of when they were describing it, it just sounded so like I almost couldn't get my head around just I don't know if it's easier for for people now to to get the information i mean it may not be more easy for them to assimilate it but i mean i was telling somebody that when i was an undergrad that there were so many people in the business school to take like introductory accounting and things like that that they would actually show the lectures on the college channel like during the week, in case people didn't make it to class, they could like watch it on TV. And th- this person just looked at me dumbfounded. And I was like, it sounds so old now when you tell people about it. And this is only, you know, in the early 90s. 
it, it is. When I was at University of California, it was that sort of thing was a lot more, a lot more evident than where I am now. Um, I'm at a community college now, and I deal with a lot of students who are fresh off the farm or come from families in a lower socioeconomic strata or first time in college for their family. And so you still get the students with the cell phones and the laptops, but they're not they're not as technologically savvy as someone, you know, the your average freshman at Harvard or Princeton is going to be. But it's it it is it is a, a a great difference from what we had back in the 90s but because i've been doing this for pretty much since 96 it's been a gradual change for me rather than something sudden um i got used to whiteboards i got used to powerpoint i got used to all the other tools we can use it's the parable of the frog in the boiling water Last thing I wanted to talk about is just do some some comics chat. What of the what's out there now uh, that you are really interested in, either superheroes or or other stuff? Well, I'm still loving um, I'm still loving uh, Ed and Sean's Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' work, whatever they do. Um, Let's see, what have I been reading? Uh, Wicked and the Divine by Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey. That's that's always reliable. Um, Squirrel Girl, Daredevil, Lumberjanes, Bitch Planet, Gotham Academy, uh, Scarlet Witch, uh, Doctor Strange, Vision... Moon Knight when Alice was on it. Um, Are you reading the the Lemire Moon Knight? No. Should I? It it is good, but it's it's very very weird. It's very much playing up all of his multiple personality stuff, and you really don't know what's real and what isn't. The first arc was basically, you know, him in an asylum and you really weren't sure if he's really crazy if like the doctors are bad guys or he's just imagining them as bad guys. And then I think he broke out at the end of that arc and now there's a whole bunch of it appears like he's in Hollywood and they're making a Moon Knight movie or maybe not. And it's and it's so there's these multiple person perspectives based on his personalities and then you've got different artists doing like each facet of his personality which makes it sort of even more discombobulated nice uh, i'm sold i i'm in these days i'm interested in in something different um something i haven't seen before and that sounds different enough that well i think i think with lemire it's he he's doing so much stuff now that's so different whether it's i mean i think some of his sort of big two stuff has been you know okay but then you know like if you look at that black hammer book that he, he's doing at dark horse like that's really weird that's him doing this weird justice league pastiche mm-hmm. that 
I would say, you know, take a look at that if you get the chance, because it's okay. It's these sort of Justice League analogs that are that are apparently in some sort of like parallel world from where they were heroes, and they're all stuck on this weird farm, and they've got they're in different bodies, but they keep flashing back to their superhero days. It, there's a lot of sort of like incomplete information, and you're still piecing it together. The thing I've been, you know, I've been talking this on the last couple of shows. To me, the best book of the year, and I'm sad that it's over. It was the Vision. That right. was like such an amazing book. You know, it was disturbing and melancholy, but I described the last issue as like affirming and melancholy, like all at the same time. I haven't read the last issue okay. yet. Um, I'm I'm sort of if I don't read it, the book's not over yet. Right. So I'm in I'm in denial. But yeah, um surprising that it came out from Marvel, but King is King's got leeway to do what he wants, I guess, and it's all to the better. I haven't read his DC work. His first arc on Batman was really good. And then they did this crossover with all the, with the other Bat books that I don't that he he may have like co-wrote but like Steve Orlando sort of wrote the whole arc, and I think like King and Tinian sort of chipped in on the under each respective books. But mm-hmm. let me put it this way: in the the first arc, he brought back the Psycho Pirate in his real costume, so wow. you know that that immediately uh, gains brownie points with me. This first arc involved Psycho Pirate and Hugo Strange. So, you know, that made me happy. And now, apparently, Psycho Pirate has been... Tra- he, he got traded to Bane, and he's now in that country that Bane runs. And apparently, Batman is forming his own suicide squad with Bat villains to go to Bane's country to bring the Psycho Pirate back to Gotham. So, I would say... I mean, the first arc... I'm sure the trade's probably up. I would say, you know, give that a look. I, it's funny that I was talking to somebody about this recently. It may have been with... with on the last pod, but there are so many books now that you're going to have like a high percentage of good stuff to read only because there's, I mean, you know, DC and Marvel are putting like 50 and 60 books out and it's, you know, you're going to have four or five that are just really good. Even if they're the ones that sort of slip through the cracks, I don't know if vision was always designed to be a mini. I kind of get the feeling it was, because it, mm-hmm. it, this has felt like it had, like, a natural arc to it. Right. But, you know, like, I really liked um, Sean Williamson's Illuminati book that, you know, was another sort of Suicide Squad, Thunderbolts-esque kind of thing, but with different books, but it had sort of a darker edge to it. But then that only lasted, like, six or seven issues, and I don't know if that was the plan or because, you know, he ended up going to... I mean, he went to D.C. and he's writing Flash now, among other things. But I really liked it. You know, and, and then, you know, there's, like, so much good stuff from, from like, Image and Oni and Boom and right. Dark Horse still that, I mean, it's almost just, like, too much, you know, for your average person on what you would think is a normal rel- a normal budget, it's like, you know, there's just too much to read. It's like, yeah. you can read it all, it's whether you can afford it you know like when i had the luxury of working in a store you could read everything you wanted you know because you had you know all the time in the world especially on slow days to get caught up and 
you know, part of it is also your business to keep up because, you know, you want to recommend good stuff to people, both because you want people to read the good stuff and you want it to sell. But I don't know how, you know, you can possibly keep up now. I know, like, my friend was talking about how he had fallen behind. You know, he was, he's reading Chew, and I was like, well, I'm like, savor those because we're on the next to the last issue. So, you know, and that's a book that I really love, but. I'm really going to be sorry to see it go, but it looks like it's pretty much been planned out exactly the way that they wanted. So they're going to go out on their own terms. Yeah, I one of the advantages to working at uh, in a uh, the library I work at is both a college library and a public library, and so I've got access to the public library collections of two counties. And public libraries these days do a lot of comic book ordering so I can when the trades out a lot of times we get them right away and I can read them that way um, and there's the inevitable lure of the online piracy sites but um, but yeah you're right there's it's a golden age but it's an expensive golden age and I there's a lot of stuff I'd like to read that I just don't don't have the don't have the money for i was very happy and pleasantly shocked that you know living in sort of you know a very rural and i would say sort of conservative area to like see how many comics we have like in our public library system and it's not even sort of like the obvious stuff i mean i went into one of the branches like a month or two ago and they had both volumes of Bandette, and I'm like, oh, I need nice. I need to like send a cookie to whoever is ordering these books in like the library office for, you know, getting such a great book. Yeah, uh, that's that's another one that I I read through the library. Um, I I'd, I'd probably end up paying for it if I had to, but I don't have to, so I don't. As we're taping, the new issue came out today, so I will give. Paul and Colleen a plug and if you want to hear us talk about Bandette people can go back and listen to the episode with we did with them a little while ago but yeah I there's so much stuff and there's you know I was trying to give recommendations to somebody the other day and like I gave them like five or six books and then when we were done there was stuff that I forgot and I was just like oh crap right. there's always always more to do just a lot of a lot of I mean I'm sticking to mostly Marvel stuff just because um, it's it's comfort food for the most part um, but just I look at image and there's so much out there that I'd like to be reading I just haven't gotten to it yet this is something that probably would have definitely flown under your radar but given uh a certain point in our history. Something that I would recommend that is very off the radar, but is okay. solidly devoted for people like you and me, is of all things, Scooby-Doo Team-Up. I've heard good things. The, like, two issues ago, Scooby ends up in this parallel dimension where it's like a talking animal world that not mm. only had crypto and people you would expect but it had like the what are they called space canine patrol agency and and yankee poodle even more so the last issue that came out because i think that's a digital only thing that eventually gets collected into print 
Right. But they went to a magic show that Zatanna was doing, and then it turned out that Zatar was missing, and then they end up going around meeting like all of the like old old school DC magicians because their artifacts had all been stolen by one guy. So this issue had eventually had Zatara in it, had Sargon, had Ibis, and then had, you know, the wizard, it had Wotan, it had, like, mm-hmm. all of these guys that I think 99% of the people listening have no idea who we are talking about, but right. but hits home for us in a, in a meaningful way. Scarlet Witch, I don't know if you've been reading it, but the writer is doing, which I think is Robinson. Yeah, it's Robinson. Is, yeah, he's he's doing his best to build up a rogues gallery for her and is occasionally will name drop some obscure 1940s timely magician, which I always really appreciate. That was the, that was the other thing that I liked about the Vision book. It, like, it was amazing how much, I don't know if I would say obscure, Stuff that, that, like, he managed to work into that book, but it's stuff that you thought would have been, like, long forgotten and probably not be allowed to be referenced anymore. Yeah. That that he managed to work into that book, which is, I think, another reason that I liked it. You know, it's one of those things where you can use continuity to your advantage without being a slave to it or just having it be sort of a wink-wink. The reason I, was, I, I told that story is long ago, this is long ago, but we used to play in in an online role playing game while we were while yeah right. while while we were in grad school and it was it was based around the Earth Two Golden Age set during World War Two and because we were we came in the middle like all of the good characters ended up being taken and so you ended up being Zatara and I ended up being Sargon. I always still have a fondness for like a bunch of those characters just based on that time that we had doing that thing then. Yeah, I I remember those role playing days fondly and I wish I wish I could get in a reliable superhero role playing I wish there were a reliable and and in terms of monthly or bi weekly or whatever superhero role playing group around here. I had one, oh, ten years ago, but it fell apart eventually. What was it, like maybe a month ago? I forget how it came up, but I ended up telling stories on Twitter about when we role-played in college and I invented what we eventually came to call Earth Nixon. Nixon, right. Which, uh, I, it was something, I think it may have been like some sort of Cthulhu-related anecdote and I was telling people how we role played on this thing where this world I created it turns out that it was like said in the in the late sixties and the good guys were counterculture heroes and the bad guys were it was sort of like it was sort of partially watchman esque I guess. And then it turns out that like these sort of authoritarian government superheroes were actually being controlled by some kind of Illuminati that was actually run by Vandal Savage, used to use the who had the helmet of Naboo whenever he wanted to use it, and then it turns out he was in league with some sort of like Cthulhu esque bad guy. And I, I I don't remember how, but I remember I actually I actually pitched that once to somebody at DC as like as because it was very similar. It was 
similar but not too similar to some else worlds that had been done not that distant from there and, and so it was like similar enough that I thought well if they could do that as an elseworlds I could do this and I I mean it never went anywhere but it was the kind of thing where the other great thing speaking of my love of the psycho pirate was the psycho pirate was like Vandal Savage's chief henchman but instead of using his his emotional powers he was basically the psycho pirate from Grant Morrison's Animal Man who had like the power of basically the power of continuity so that he could he was like Kid Eternity in that he could conjure up people from other comic book worlds. I don't know if you rem- I don't know if you remember this, I, but I, I remember. But yeah, I remember the. I don't remember everyone who they ended up fighting, but he conjured up four or five people for the good guys to fight in like this big epic battle. One of whom was Usagi Yojimbo, and the other who, the other one was Kid Miracle Man. And I know like they ended up winning, but I I think I don't remember if it was your character or somebody else, but like. Somebody sort of actually put together who he was and apparently, like, you know, had this moment of horrific f- fright of who they were going to have to fight. They ended up winning, of right. course. But I just I just remember it was it was so, you know, in hindsight, it, not surprisingly so self-indulgent to, sh- you know, be a continuity nerd. But it was fun. But it was fun. You said that you have some stuff in the pipeline. Is it anything that you can discuss? Uh, well, my next book is coming out at the end of July. It is the title is the evolution of the costumed avenger, costumed avenger, the four thousand year history of the superhero, and it is a look at how the concept of the superhero evolved, starting with the epic of Gilgamesh and going through the ages up. To, to the modern day um i spend 10 chapters going over the pre pre superman history of it all and then a one chapter on comics from the from superman up to the present day and then one chapter on superhero movies and tv and i found a lot of very interesting things one of, one of the favorites that you'd be well positioned, better positioned to appreciate than most people is that there was a Superboy pilot in 61 that never went anywhere. The Superman show of the 50s had just ended and the networks had a Superboy pilot, but it never, it, it never went anywhere. If, if Superboy, if there had been a Superboy TV show, then the odds of a parody show like um, Underdog appearing would be relatively slim. And I'd argue without Underdog, Batman 66 may not have come come to be. So there's there's a big what if right there involving this lost lost pilot that I'm I'd I'd be interested to see if it was if it was really in the vein of the Superman of the 50s or whether and how much it was influenced by Silver Age stuff did they actually film that or was it just they filmed it I I just don't think it survived Uh, it is interesting yeah 
so yeah, I've got I've got that book coming out. Um, my Encyclopedia of Paul Piro's is supposed to come out in sometime next year. Uh, we're the the publisher has had it for five years and hasn't done anything with it, so we're going to pull it from if if they don't give us a solid date. Um, me and the agent have agreed that we're gonna we're gonna pull the book from them, and I'll just I'll just sell it to one of the reference book publishers and like um, McFarland or Greenwood, and have it come out. But I've been working on this book for ten years and am enthusiastic about it. It's it is the reference book to end all reference books as far as global popular culture of the nineteen. 1900s to the 1940s it's got it's got everyone in it what of your old stuff is still in print i assume the fables book is still in print are the the league books or the victoriana book are they in print uh the league books are not in print anymore victoriana is available as an ebook. Uh, I, I made that a, as an ebook. um i've got links to all my all my uh, books on my web page, which is at jessnevins.com slash books html. So people, yeah, people can go there if they are interested in that. I want to thank you for doing the show today. It's We haven't talked in a while. I'm going to have you back at some... We did not get to talk about any of our tales and comic book adventuring. when We used to drive... This is, this is another thing to tell you how long it goes. We used to drive two hours at a shot a couple times a year to root for golden and silver age back issues when we lived in Ohio. And we used to, some of the car trips are so nerdy. It would probably be embarrassing to actually discuss them, but we probably should on some show in the future. Yeah. Um, I'm in the process of selling a bunch of my old comics on eBay and if we could have only waited 20 years to start collecting golden and silver age books, it is the prices are so depressed now. It's the, the only thing I'm, I'm really collecting of old comics is old Superman's from the fifties and sixties. And they're, they're going for a song now. See, I've gotten to the point when I just got so tired of all my books that I sold you know, probably like 50 or 60 long boxes just just to be rid of them. And because it's the kind of thing where it's like, I used to have, you know, a full room full of long boxes. And then all now I could fit on a thumb drive that's like smaller than a cigarette lighter. There's some, you know, I've kept like key stuff or stuff that's important to me. Like I have, like I still have like all my Starman issues and certain like gold and Silver Age books like, one of those books that we picked up on our trip, even though it is virtually worthless, more or less. You know, I still have my copy of All Star Thirty Seven, right? That I picked up, which is the the first Injustice Society, that you know is probably below poor. It has a cover, but it's detached and it doesn't have a back cover. And I think I paid thirty five dollars for it or something like that. But you know, I'm never getting rid of that because. Yeah. It hits on so many of, of my, like, loves and obsessions in comics. You know, your average 300-issue run of The Flash from the Silver Age, do I really need that in print when I can just get that from Comicsology 
or the trade, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's me being old or just being tired of having so much stuff, but I'm kind of happy to be mostly digital now for, like, new stuff and then, like, stuff that I want to make sure I have. You know, I pick up later in trade or hardcover or archive or absolute or omnibus, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I'm I'm in the process of getting rid of 90% of my collection. Um, it, for me, it's the room it takes up, and also, am I ever going to reread these again? I mean, given the given the press of of events and things that need doing, and my work as a writer, I just don't have the time to read back issues of comics the way I used to. And while I have fond memories and always will of the Peter David Hulks or the Mark Wade Flashes, you know, I'm never going to read them again. And if I do, there's always comicology. If I do want to read them, there's always comicology. So, yeah, I, 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 it would be interesting to see how many do a survey, see how many old timers like us are going through the same same thing, just unloading hundreds or thousands of comics and and keeping just the what's precious what's really funny is i've actually now been finding things that i've had before or that i haven't seen in like 20 or 30 years in like dollar boxes and quarter bins it's like there's like us one of the stores up in philly you know they get such churn from old stuff and it really doesn't have any financial value. So, you know, so they just put it in quarter boxes or dollar boxes. But, you know, I think it was like a month ago I got, you know, some like weird 70s DC and Marvel stuff like the Golem issues of like whatever Marvel horror that book was. But I also found like two issues of Critters that had Usagi Ujimbo stories in them and like a complete run of like Stig's Inferno and some other weird oh like and some issues of zot and it's like i haven't read these in forever and so like for a quarter sure i'll buy this just to reread it because it's only a quarter but it like it made it gave me like a little warm spot yeah i i haven't gone on issue hunting in a in a while mostly mostly i do my shopping on on ebay because the sort of thing i want you know, I, I want my, my Silver Age Superman. I'm not going to find that in stores around here. Or I may, but I can find it for half to a third on on eBay that I do in the stores. But, like, for us, you know, it used to be more about the thrill of the hunt right? than, than the book. And it's, it's like, while I'm sure now I could – this is another thing about sort of like the modern age. It's like – Yes, if I finally want to find those issues of some 70s DC Sword and Sorcery book, I'm sure I could find, you know, five copies right now on eBay if I wanted, but there's really no fun in that. You know, it used to be, you know, looking for, you know, trying to find like 50s Phantom Stranger or Danger Trail, you know, or Not Brand Yuck, or that DC Sherlock Holmes book, you know, that was, that was a chore, and when you finally found it after like two years of looking, or even, you know, something is more more common but less common, like the war books and the Western books, you know, by the time we were looking for stuff in the mid-90s, you know, 
a lot of the DC Western stuff you could barely find. But yeah, now it's like, yeah, I could just either I could probably find it digitally or I could find it on eBay. And it's it'd be cool to finally have, but it's just not quite the same. No, I'm I've one of the things about working with college students for 20 years is that I do pick up a lot of their habits and the the whole I want it now and I don't want to wait. I've I've sort of fallen into that. I don't want to I'm not sure I'd have the the patience to go rooting through dollar bins anymore. Plus we're old and it's just not fun. Yeah. And I you never know what you're going to get in a in a um, comic book store anymore. You might get, well, maybe not creepy, but socially awkward people, and I, I don't want to put up with that anymore. Thanks again. People can check out your stuff uh, online or the other stuff, and we'll look forward to your stuff coming out soon. Uh, thanks for doing the show, and we will talk to everybody next time.